Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Creppy and here's Aaron Fentress of the Oregonian in Oregon Live, of course. And uh, we'll get into uh, quite a bit here on uh, this edition of the podcast. It'll be, uh, it's kind of a cross between a off-season edition from a football perspective, uh, still kind of in the height of recruiting season ahead of the February signing period. Uh, so we get into that a little bit. And also uh, the formal kind of turning of the page uh, in the you know figurative sense that the end of the college football season has occurred across the board. The national championship, obviously, now about eight, nine days ago. Uh, and, uh, and Dan Landing wrapping up his time at Georgia and winning a national championship there uh, with the Bulldogs. And now kind of the shifting of gears, like I say, on the recruiting front on all kinds of personnel movement and the transfer portal. Uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit as well. But also, yes, that there is the turning of the page to true focus on, uh, in a greater sense, the college basketball season. Uh, and boy, the weekend that was uh, for the Oregon men's and women's program. So we'll get into that first because, yes, there's plenty to get into in football, and we will. But after a weekend of really historic magnitude uh, for both teams individually, but collectively for the entire department and the institution, uh, it's about as good a weekend as really anybody can remember in college basketball history uh, to have a men's and women's team both win top ten team, you know, top ten games back to back over the course of a weekend is basically unheard of. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't happen. I mean, it doesn't happen in the men's game like that uh, in the span of a road trip, in particular, in forty six years. Uh, since Clemson did it in 75-76, if you include Oya and the women's team also had a pair of top 10 wins, uh, it happened to be at home on the same weekend, yeah, I would imagine that that's got to be unprecedented. So uh, we'll start with that for sure. First, you have to even have the opportunity. How often do you play back-to-back teams that are in the top 10 and then to beat them both? It's just like, whoa, what the hell? Especially, especially when you're sort of struggling. I mean, like, not neither team is bad, but... They didn't look like teams that were going to be able to pull that off, and then they pulled it off. It was, yeah, it was pretty impressive. Yeah, some some of it um, uh, on the on the women's side far more uh, circumstantial uh, in terms of heading into it, and then even the course of it, quite frankly, uh, to a certain extent. And on the men's side, a team who yeah had had certainly had its struggles uh, early in the season, in particular in not conference play, had begun to appear to put some things together a little bit, a little bit, but was still just. It was a little bit disjointed also. Yeah, for as much as they started to have some success, just weren't totally together yet. And then this past weekend, you started to see a lot more come together for both teams. Uh, Again, really on on all fronts. Uh, And now the potential that both programs had, both teams had at the start of the season and what was thought to be their potential and their ceiling as the season was to go on. Might very well be there. You know, all of the potential, the skill, the talent, the ability that's there, that was undeniable. It became a question of would they have the time to be able to put it all together after being behind the proverbial eight ball for, again, different reasons. Uh, with the women's team, it was mainly due to injury. With the men's team, it was not injury related. It was just, well, well Injury incur- in terms of during the season. They did have off-season injuries that prevented them from maybe building the level of cohesion we're seeing now before the season started. But now, like I say, you're starting to see the potential that's there. And because the league uh, 
is not that strong as a whole, uh, particularly on the men's mm-hmm. side. On the women's side, there's more talent, but there's been some clunky losses. There's been some teams that have been snake bit by injury, been programs that have been slowed dramatically uh, due to COVID pauses. It's there for the taking uh, on the women's side for sure, outside of maybe Stanford. It's a very competitive uh, wide-open field really for who might finish second and, frankly, who could even win the league. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Stanford will win it uh, on the women's side. They're certainly favored, but they they might. <laughs> but, but if Oregon's going to play like this, like this past weekend, they're, they're going to be a problem. Uh, and on the men's side, like I say, is yes, there were three programs that pulled away from everybody early. But Oregon has put itself from way, way on the outside of the conversation. The Oregon men went from 91st in the net rankings to 58th after two wins uh, in just massive fashion. And now they've kind of settled in right around the 60-62 mark, uh, mainly because of just some games elsewhere and, and you know some of the data points begin to shift each day. But that's a meteoric rise. I mean, to see that kind of rise, I know the net metric, uh, for those who don't follow uh, college basketball minutia on the day-to-day necessarily, maybe you've heard it the last couple of seasons, it's been mentioned, but the net analytic has basically replaced RPI, and uh, frankly, is you know without knowing all the finer points and finer aspects of how it's all calculated, it's a lot of efficiency-driven, um, it gets kind of more of a weighted score, whereas RPI was much more formulaic, and it's a pretty accurate representation, quite honestly. Uh, it, as the season goes on, as more and more data points, more and more games get played, you start to see it becomes really reflective, quite honestly, of reality uh, in a lot of ways. So Oregon goes from, like I say, 91st to 58th, and now, like I say, sorry, goes down a couple of pegs to 62 as the week uh, begins here. That's enormous. That's I've not been able to track down entirely. I'm hoping to get a little bit of clarity from it, but I believe that that might be unprecedented in the albeit short term uh, existence of net. That's a massive rise. Uh, So I know that uh, obviously you're focused primarily on what you've got going on on a day to day, Aaron, uh, with uh, with the Blazers and stuff. But uh, anything that caught your eye beyond the uh, the obvious and the results uh, from the Oregon men this past weekend against the L.A. schools? Well, my son watches them a lot. He's a big fan. And so I, I, you know, I get caught up watching it here and there. And, and they just always seem like they just, well, not always, but for the most part, they just seem like they just hadn't figured out how to play together, which has been typical of a lot of Dana Altman teams early in the season when you're throwing some, you know, some new guys together, guys coming back from injuries or what have you. I was at the BYU game. I know you were there too. Uh, that's the only game I watched live and it was like, whoa, but you knew that they weren't that bad, right? It was like, there's no way this team's this bad because that was just an awful, awful night. Um, but you know, when they, you know, they beat Utah and I was like, okay, well, Utah's not very good. And then they barely beat Oregon State and Oregon State's been bad. So that for me is what made this even more shocking was that they were coming off a not, you know, two not very good wins and then Pepperdine. I'm not sure where they are, but I don't think they're great either. No, they're terrible. Um, yeah, they're terrible. I know at the time in the past when I used to be decent, but anyway, so what there was no, there really is nothing other than that they were winning that really said that they were going to be able to sweep these two teams, let alone beat, you know, or beat one of them at all. And they end up beating both. So clearly to me, I mean, I, I don't know if it's cliche at this point, but everything just seems to be falling together in the second half of the season for an Altman team. And they look way more efficient on offense and, and their defense is, is, is more strung together and more tight 
uh, and what they're trying to do. And, you know, that this is, this is typically what happens with one of his teams in the second half of, of a season. Yeah, and it's happening even a little earlier than it has in past years. Uh, and, and in fairness, um, in terms of I know that that is certainly the general narrative uh, with with Oregon teams under Altman. And to be clear, obviously, it bears a lot of, you know, merits a lot from that. However, you know, last season, it wasn't that they weren't together. They weren't achieving. I mean, they were a damn good team really all year last year. They had, I think, a couple losses in there. It was Wazoo loss where Duarte uh, hurt the ankle and stuff. They had they had a couple of games that weren't necessarily great. But on the whole, I mean, they were they were live the whole way. It was a matter of where they're going to get the games back in to be able to compete in the Pac-12 for the uh, league title, which, of course, they did, um, and, and the way the schedule unfurled. But they were a good team, and then Duarte just took it to an nth degree. And the reason why they were, I wouldn't say lacking at times, but what, what they were missing at times really last year, which was obvious, was Will Richardson was not in the lineup for basically almost half the season. Uh, he missed a significant period of time uh, with a thumb injury. But once he got back uh, and gave himself you know, a couple of games to get reacclimated and uh, especially uh, with not just his role per se, I mean, he's point guard, but really getting reacclimated to, you know, handling the ball and, and handling the offense. Once that got rolling, he took it to a next level. Uh, again, Duarte was already playing at a high level in the first place. Uh, Figueroa and Omarui were playing well basically all year. So they took it to, a, you know, and got to a sweet 16. The year before, again, they played well the whole season uh, in Pritchard's final season. The year before that, yeah, that was the late season surge where, I mean, they were dead and buried and caught absolute fire, uh, and obviously ran out all the way to the Pac-12 tournament title and got themselves in the tournament and to a sweet 16. I understand there's years prior to all this, but in terms of there's nobody else on the roster, the only player on the roster who has any connection to any of those teams is Richardson. He is the common thread of these last several seasons. Everybody else is, you know, Eric Williams comes back from last year. And he had redshirted the year before, but everybody else on the roster is new. Uh, so yeah, you can go back to Altman history, but that has nothing to do with Jacob Young, <laughs> a transfer from Rutgers or Quincy Garrier, who transferred from Syracuse, uh, or Devian Harmon, a transfer from Oklahoma. And nobody utilizes transfers as, as much and as well, uh, as Altman. And that's a credit to him and the coaching staff and the program as a whole that they're able to procure talent. Uh, now in the transfer portal, but you know, in the pre even pre portal era, he procured talent that way and gets it to come in and, and fit really, really well. Uh, and that's awesome. That, you know, that, that's hard to do. Uh, and when you're able to do that and have veteran players, you see what the results can look like. You know, I know that for there's the, uh, there's the age old kind of debate with Altman, and I'm sure you probably have a, a thought on this, Aaron, of the, in the big picture here of how do you build a, how do you build a program? How do you build a team in college basketball today? And do you go strictly the recruiting route, but then do you run the risk of the one and dones? Do you go, how do you integrate in the transfers? Because obviously veteran players and established players who are used to playing at the high college level would are more proven. But if you only build a roster that way, how is that sustainable? But is there a such thing as sustainable in men's college basketball in 2022 is there such a thing as really building in that way i'd like to think that there is it's not every clearly this is the program that takes to the extreme by way of incoming transfers uh there's different ways to do this 
But I'm not sure anybody out there has just a roster of 100% homegrown high school signees, no transfers, and uh, doesn't see anybody leave. Yeah, so that that question has been debated for a long time. Like I, I, I can't remember what year it was, but they went out and got a guard, and then they got Mosier, who's working for Oregon now. I want to say that was 13-14 or something like that, or 14-15. And people started talking, and even past players were like, criticizing, you know, is this the way to go getting all these transfers? You need to build through the youngsters. And I was just like, what the hell are you people talking about? Yeah, of course you go out and try and recruit as many good high school kids as you can. But like you said, one, you get the one and dones. And then two, if you get some who just don't pan out, that happened a lot under Altman, under, under most people, it happens you're going to have kids who don't pan out. And then you're left with holes in your roster. Or you're, you have young teens because guys move on. You bring in high school, three or four high school kids and they're just not ready to contribute. So at the, at the level you want. So the idea that you wouldn't go out and seek transfers was just nonsense to me. And he's continued to do it eight, nine years later. And it's to me, there's no right or wrong way to do it. You do what you need to do to build a winning team. And if you look at your roster, then it's easy. You look what's coming back and go, Oh, I need this, this and this. Then you go out and get it. And, and clearly they've recruited well. It's not like they haven't. I mean, they've had how many? Five-star kids come in in the last five or six years, like six. They've had a lot of really talented players from yeah, and but again, some have been and, one and done. And, and, but and in fairness, in the transfer uh, realm, for whatever reason, and I'm, I'm not saying good, bad, or otherwise about it, but whether we're talking about in basketball, football, or anything else, you rarely see the five-star designation from transfers. And yet, at the same time, if you were an all-league player, and not just an all-league player, like I mean, an all-league. First team all league at the power five level, you're probably pretty close to five star in that realm. Yeah, theoretically, you say, well, if you're five star, you're going to the draft. Yes. But if you're five star in the portal, in the relative sense, in the talent pool that is available in that sphere, you probably fall somewhere close to that. And again, they poach a lot, they you know, they they do a ton in that way. So if you're calling them four star transfers, five star transfers, I don't really care. Bottom line. They've brought in a lot of really talented players from there. And yes, also some really talented high school players like a bull bull as an example. He was one of those guys and others, certainly. Um, so it's not as though they've, they've really balanced it in a lot of ways, oddly as enough as it sounds, even though they take it to the extreme from a transfer perspective. If you told me right now, I could have five senior all star, all league guys from anywhere in the country. It could be blue bloods. It could be mid majors. Or I can have five five star high school kids. I'm taking the five grown men. senior yeah. all league adults yeah. <laughs> over those little kids because I'm going to outsmart them. With my players are going to outsmart them and make them do silly things. And yes, they're going to be athletic and they're going to be spectacular. But in a, in a in a series for sure, I'm going to win most of the game. So I, what Dana does, I think, is just awesome. And I, I seven eight years ago, I was saying he's the best free agent. Uh, acquisition coach in America, all sports levels <laughs> because he just kept doing it. And what was happening too is that in some of those years, like you mentioned, you know, years where they were good for the get go and some of those years where he brought in two or three guys and had some young kids, there were growing pains. And those were the years where it's like, you were like, uh oh. And then the second half of the season, boom, they blew up Peyton Pritchard's junior year mm -hmm. when he had the, he had the horrible start and we were all like, what's going on with Peyton Pritchard? And then he just took off and the team took off and they went sweet 16 that year, right? I think that was Lewis King's freshman year, mm -hmm. I think, and he went, yep. he went pro. Yep. But anyway, so yeah, he's done a great job. And sometimes it takes time to get everything to gel. But when you got, like you said, adults and they're experienced, 
They just need to learn. Once they learn it, boom, it's going to click, and then they're ready to roll. So, Dana, do what you got to do, brother. And and the one thing that <laughs> that I think kind of gets lost in um in the entire college basketball conversation at times, but especially on the men's side, uh, is you know we, we talk about players by way of all you know they're young or you know, they're veteran or whatever. To me, there really is no such a thing um, in terms of they're all young. They're in college uh, intuitively. Mm-hmm. There is a little bit by way of an experience that comes along, certainly when you start getting to juniors and seniors, for sure. There, there is. I'm not saying that that experience is of no value. However, you got to remember that right now, I mean, we talk about a guy like Richardson as a fourth-year player. You know, at this point, he's basically played somewhere somewhere in the realm, because in part because of injury again in the shortened 2020 season. But Richardson, Will Richardson's played somewhere right around. I'll pull it up now. He's got 102 career games. Jeez. Now, I mean, that's something. Don't get me wrong. That's that's you know, it's more than you know a true freshman coming in with zero. But an NBA rookie is in an 82 game season. A fourth year college player is about a hundred or so games into their careers. So and, and let alone the rigors of travel and every which other thing else. So point is, is even the most experienced of college players could end up seeing wildly more time their first year in the NBA than they saw in four years in college. Yeah. That's not that way in football at all. When in football would we ever say a four-year starting player in college football would have more experience as a rookie in the NFL? Like, are you, what? Like, that's, that's, you can't even wrap your head around the concept of that. But in basketball, it is. So that's what I say. So as much as experience matters and, and, and obviously filling out your frame and body and strength and conditioning and all those things. Yes, significant, but it is even different in the basketball realm because it's all relative. But even the most experienced of college players have still only played 60, 70, 80, 90 games at times before you're talking about becoming a prominent transfer. So. That's where obviously, yes, you can still have the, the one and done uber talented freshman come in and make an impact because even the most experienced players around them, like I say, the, the disparity may not be that significant in the grand scheme of things. If their talent is really that supreme. Having said that, no, what this team has done here this past weekend and the jolt they provided themselves, I mentioned a lot of the guys who've done it, but they've done it even through last Monday's game in Corvallis. Uh, which was scheduled at the most inconvenient of times, uh, but be that as it may. Uh, credit to those who showed up because it was still a, a fun environment at Gill Coliseum on a Monday night when the national championship game was being played, but be that as it may, uh, on short notice, no less. But offensively, this team was still, again, just a bit disjointed. Uh, it, you just didn't see at times, and as much as Jacob Young took over late and Will Richardson took over and stuff, they they played really well and in Folly Dante had a good night. But the thing was was at times they when they had kind of defaulted to isolation and I'm gonna I'm gonna call it hero ball because it's not just one person, but they default at times to isolation. And that's not that's not supreme X's and O's, that's not world renowned strategy. That's just saying Here's a really talented player, ball in their hands, let them go do their thing. And that works for a lot of people. That works in the NBA. So that's not saying like that's a bad thing. 
But point is, is how replicable is that? You know, are you just going to do that every half court set? You know, so they're scoring in transition. They were hitting some open shots at times when they were passing and creating those fast plays. That worked really well, still works really well. But when they would get in half court and the shot clock would get under 15 seconds, especially under 10, then it just turned into ISO game. And that's where I went. They just still don't know entirely how to play together because this is their default. Their default is ball in the hands of Richardson, Harmon, or Young and let them freelance, which right. again, I understand the game, but it's, they, it wasn't because of fine passing that it was operating <laughs> and, and getting there. All of a sudden in LA, there was significantly less of that. There was significantly more passing inside to Dante, who again has had a really nice run outside and kicking outside from Dante, from Williams, from Gary. They just were much more cohesive offensively as well as defensively and what they did defensively. And that's the area that Altman, of course, always harps on, rightfully so. That is the, you know, part of the identity for him. But also because the analytics bear out, they, I mean, just matter of factly, on the entire season sample, not just the one or two game sample, this is a team who still has a miles to go by way of defense. You know, in, in Ken Palm, Oregon is 52nd. They're 25 in offensive efficiency and 105th in defensive efficiency. There is no way, no way that this team is going to make the Sweet 16 or more in the tournament if they even make it in the first place, which, again, is not a foregone conclusion right now. I mean, they, they yeah. gave themselves a very real chance. But if they are going to make the tournament and make a run in March, that number in the defensive side has to take a monumental jump. There is no – I mean, again, it bears out the history. The, the stats are what they are. If you're going to have any chance of winning the national championship, you have to rank in the top 20 in both. Uh, and if you rank in the top 10 in both, it's like you're, you're, you're really playing with live bullets. Well, like I say, they're 25 and 105th. They have got to take massive jump on the defensive side. I think they can. I think they have the talent to do it, but you know, there's time. There's 14 games over seven weeks. They've got time. Uh, and unfortunately for them, their next one, which was to be against Washington State on Thursday night, that's another one postponed due to COVID with the Cougars program. So they get a bad Washington team Sunday night. They absolutely must win that game. Uh, just mathematically, they have to win that game uh, to keep everything alive. They get Colorado on Tuesday and then wrap up this current homestand against Oregon State on, I believe that's the 29th. Then another game, they absolutely must win. So two of their next three games, all three are at home, but two of them are literally by definition, by mathematical definition, must win games. So they've given themselves a shot. They've got a five-game win streak that could very easily uh, become either seven of eight or eight straight. You do that. The month of February is going to be a lot of fun uh, for the Oregon men. That's that's for sure. Might even get Aaron to come down to Matthew Knight uh, on an off day uh, from the Blazers <laughs> if, uh, if there is such a thing. Uh, be uh, yeah. be a, be an interesting. Big one. Yeah, big if for sure. <laughs> You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break.
Shifting to the uh, Oregon women, who have obviously also had uh, a terrific weekend and beating a pair of top 10 teams against Arizona and UConn uh, on Saturday and Monday, respectively. And this is a program who obviously is used to playing some pretty big games and getting some fine wins as well. So uh, not necessarily as historic by way of relative context because they've had such wins before. However, it had been a minute. You know, I know that for the fans, it's easy to look back and say, well, you know, two years ago and three years ago and four years ago, this is what this program was doing. This is what this team is doing. But you got to remember that there was nobody on this team who played on those teams. That Sedona Prince and Yara Sabali were in the locker room when they went to the final, you know, for the postseason with, with Sabrina and company, but they weren't playing. Mm-hmm. So, Yes, they had achieved these things as a program before. They had been a Final Four team only a couple of years ago, and we could all argue about what they would have done in 2020 had the tournament not gotten canceled. But the players on this team and this current roster, they hadn't achieved that. So you saw the celebration uh, after especially the Arizona comeback, which was enormous. I mean, down 17 points with 12 minutes to go. I don't care if you're home, road. I don't care if there's 8,000 people, 10,000 people, or zero people in the building. That's just a hard thing to do uh, when you've got a 17-point deficit with 12 minutes to play. And we're just getting so cross between dominated and just really just kind of handled. Arizona was handling them. Arizona was doing everything that was was and is a hallmark of Arizona women's basketball to a T. They were playing extraordinarily well defensively, incredibly physically. Offensively, they were having their way. It was you know, basically one or two steps shy of a clinic. They were doing exactly what it is that they want to do. And then in the last 12 minutes, for the Oregon women to completely turn that game on its head. And it was more than any one player. So Donor Prince went off in the fourth quarter. And... Tahina Pow Pow had a big night as a whole while being under the weather in the process. And the Sobley had a solid night. And Adia Rogers obviously makes the game winner there at the buzzer uh, on the on the rebound. But it took such a collective effort. And those are the players on the offensive side who are worth mentioning. To me, the game shifted most when it was defensive substitutions they brought in in the fourth quarter. Players who barely played, if at all, prior to that in Shania Pinto and Filipina Shea, who just completely changed the tone of the game. Arizona was imposing its will from a physical standpoint on Oregon, and then the one thing that the one thing that can impact the Arizona women uh, as a team, as a program, as a style in which they play is... If you are playing somebody who wants to play bully ball and you let them bully you, they're going to bully you. But if you actually punch the bully back, sometimes you're in a boxing match and sometimes all of a sudden you've become the bully. And they, Oregon became the bully in the fourth quarter in overtime. They, they took over. Uh, and, impo- and, and Arizona didn't like that very much <laughs> at all, uh, both during or after the fact. Uh, which will certainly add uh, some layers to it. But I don't know how much you caught of, of that game in particular, but that was uh, from the basketball traditionalist. 
that was that was old school basketball. I'm not saying it was the most entertaining for fans, especially for the first 30 minutes for Ducks fans. Uh, it was not high scoring by any stretch. It was not an offensive slugfest. It became competitive, but it was not a slugfest uh, in right. the offensive sense. But that was that was old school basketball. That was Heat Knicks early ninety Heat, you know Knicks <laughs> Knicks Pacers. You know that was Anthony Mason, the late Anthony Mason, you know Charles Oakley style basketball. Um, that was really was that Van Gundy just, hanging on to morning's legs yeah, on morning's leg. Yeah, that was just yeah. Frankly, it was the way the coaches were were conducting themselves yeah, exactly. too. Yeah, we, were, we were one step shy. You know, you know, the, you know. Before you know it, you know. You know, you know, when they meet in Tucson, maybe Adia Barnes will be swinging from Sedona Prince's leg by the end of it. Uh, but no, it really was. That was a throwback to a bygone era of basketball, of really just brute physicality, of half court, of passing, rebounding, body positioning. Like I say, it was things that you don't see as much in college basketball, men's or women's game, frankly, in 2022. And that was, let me say, I, for, for somebody who appreciates that style of game. You were loving I it. I enjoyed seeing it. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. I, I, and, I, and I'm okay with the fact that players and or coaches on each side may not like each other very much. Speaking of which, has anyone gotten to the bottom of that whole thing? I don't think there's really a bottom to get to, to be quite honest. Um, <laughs> I just I, saw a I lot of he don't. say, she say on Twitter and I just, yeah, I, well, for one, I think it, 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 it first, it first jumped off in the immediate after in two, there were two immediate things after the game. One, what Barnes said, said in the actual post game and just crushing the officials repeatedly. Yeah. And, you can feel any which way about it. She was reprimanded by the Pac-12 for it, whatever that means. Um, which, okay, that's fine. And again, she's free to say that. You know, she, her team was called for a season high in fouls. You can you can look any which way about that, but they were called for a season high. You can understand why she might be a little bit peeved about that. Granted, they play a certain kind of style. So, okay, fine. And if you're a coach of that team, you're going to stand up for your players and your team. All right. But needless to say, that drew, drew some reaction naturally from Oregon fans after Oregon comes back and wins the game. You would naturally pose the question, would Adia Barnes have been as vocal about the officiating had they not lost in overtime? It's a perfectly fair question to suggest. We'll never know the answer. All right. <laughs> then there was the second part in the late part of the game and after the game in that there was a photo that was sent out from a fan, uh, a Ducks fan. Uh, purporting to show Barnes uh, making an obscene hand gesture. And some fans took it to believe that it occurred during the game or after the game. And it did not, at least not from the photo in question, because that was from the Final Four. That was not from Saturday night. Oh, are you serious? That photo wasn't from the Oregon game? No, it was a screen cap from... When they were playing UConn in the women's final. Oh my God. I hate human beings. So there were some fans. I never discovered that. Yeah. Uh, So there were fans who were then Oregon fans tweeting at Adia Barnes, you know, about you did this, you you know, that's blah, blah, blah. And then she was responding to the fans and then sub, you know, saying, 
one of the responses was, well, I, I, if you, I, I don't want to, I'm paraphrasing here. I'd have to look up the exact tweet again. And, and frankly, we're going down a rabbit hole of just whatever. Uh, but essentially, I mean, if you saw that, I don't know what you saw because it didn't happen. Um, so you might want to get your facts straight. And yeah, that's the point. And then even after the fact, one of the fans who tweeted at Barnes and got a response from Barnes or going off of, again, a photo from 10 months ago is then going back to the original fan going like, oh, now you tell me it's, you know, from 10 months ago. So it's again, this is why social media sucks um, at times and why giving a voice to everybody, especially, um, uh, you know, as great and interactive as it can be. I can also uh, open up a, a wormhole that just is totally unnecessary and creates narratives and creates things that were just just didn't happen. Um, but be that as it may, uh, then you got the accusations from Barnes and one of the Arizona's players that Kelly Graves was cursing at her during the game, whatever. Again, and then he says after Monday's game, which is the next time we could talk to him, that he felt everything was blown out of proportion and competitors compete and sometimes it's not always pretty. Again. I'm not here to make excuses for anybody or any which other. Either way, I'm here just to chronicle it. I enjoy the fact that there are people who don't get along all the time in sport. That's okay. That's You know what? Not everyone has to hold hands. Not everybody <laughs> has to be friends. Not everybody has to get along. Not everybody has to see the world through the same prism. You can have people, who, especially in the competitive sphere, who are just ruthless competitors who don't like one another. That's okay. I, I, I'm okay living in that world where there are competitors who don't like one another or competitors who do like one another, but who will do anything to get under the other competitor's skin. That's okay too. As if, you know, I don't know we watched like, didn't we all watch like a 10 part series on ESPN on Michael Jordan uh, a year and a half, almost hey, two years hey, ago. Everybody. <laughs> I don't know. Hey. You know, <laughs> Did we, did we not all watch that at the height of the pandemic? I remember seeing that. I, I seem to recall watching that. Uh, you know, and you heard all the anecdotes and the stories of, you know, about a ruthless competitor and how he went about it against people who he did respect and others who he didn't, uh, in ways that he created, uh, disrespect in his own mind to do it. Okay. Fine. Like, I, again, it, it, I, I think at times people get uneasy about this, particularly in the women's game in a very bizarre way. Uh, and frankly, in a very patronizing way. And it's unnecessary and it's frankly wrong. It is okay for female competitors to be as ruthless as male competitors. It is okay for female coaches to be as ruthless as male coaches. Fine by me. Acting as though, oh, well, they're not supposed to act like that or something or being sanctimonious about it to me. It's like, what? What are you talking about? That, that's, that's why? That's absurd. They're no less competitors at all. They're on the same headcount, 100% scholarship. They're playing for a national championship in the same way. Now they're all making money in the NIL realm or capable of making money in the NIL realm. Uh, some of whom, frankly, earning more than some of their male counterparts in that way from the player's perspective. Good on them. So if there are competitors who don't get along in the same way, again, if there were two male coaches barb, you know, shooting barbs like this, you can go back to the, the Cheney Calipari, you know, exchange from many moons ago, uh, or plenty of others. No one bats an eye. But because it's in the, the women's game, it's now we're, now, now we're supposed to get our feathers ruffled and, and act like, you know, there's a, there's a controversy here. Really? I mean, again, you cover the NBA, Aaron. How many, I'm, 
may or may not even know in terms of, you know, not courtside every night, but you think NBA coaches aren't at times cursing at each other? I mean, oh, come on. Of course. Like, give me a break. Like, of course. And the players are all the time. And the players exactly. Cur- yeah, the li- listen, <laughs> especially now, listen, you can listen to them now, especially if you, if you're listening, you know, the, the, the room will be blue. I promise you. But you can listen to, you know, the various different podcasts out there that include Kevin Garnett and some of the oh, things that he's, he's crazy. That guy's like, oh, I mean, no, he's, he's entertaining as hell. Right. But I mean, like, if you, you know, oh, what's about like mouth. what? We bit just a wee bit, you know, but point is, is okay. Like I say, like this happens in the NBA. This happens in professional sport. Now it puts it happens in college sports, frankly. Okay. I'm not one to get bent out of shape and outraged about that. Like I say, like again, everything I'm not saying don't be classy or don't have sportsmanship or all that. Sure. But in the heat of competition, I'm okay in the heat of competition. If people like it's words, like, don't overstep by way of, you know, something just truly way, way over the top by way of, you know, delving into subject areas that are just way, way, way beyond competition. But if about, like, obscenity or something, like, get over it. What are we talking about here? Like, are you kidding? Really? This is this is what we're doing? So, like, now tell the world, yeah, no, 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 you can't. That, and, and, and the key of the moment. like I mean, stop. <laughs> stop. I mean, give, give me a break. Again, there, and again, there, that doesn't mean you have to. It doesn't mean that's the only way. And if you want to only, you know, cheer for or, or agree with uh, coaches of a philosophy that, you know, that's absolutely not the way to do things, that's your prerogative too. But to say like that, you know, that because it does happen, uh, that you should feel, you know, like one way or another towards a coach who is fiery one way. What? Man, this to me, this is good for the game. This is good for this rivalry. That is great. The what, fact that this is a rivalry. This was a was series the, that had been dominated by Oregon. What was the main thing? What was the main thing that catapulted the NBA? The rivalry. What era? The, At what era? I was going to well, say the rivalry I'm between sorry. the Celtics and the Lakers. I mean, if you yeah, really want to the, historically, yeah, that's, you know. that's what I was talking about. Yeah. Like say, well, of what era? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, catapulted to the, to the stratosphere it yes. became. It, there's a, there, yeah. Everyone knows there's an ignition point, and it was the Bird, Magic, the Celtics, Lakers, even the whole racial component of that, creating that rivalry, that animosity. Mikhail, uh, clotheslining Ram, uh, Rambus on that. You know, the fast break, the shoving, the pushing, the barking, the swearing that, I mean, Kareem almost knocked out Parrish and Mikhail, I think in one game, like it was just crazy, but it made everyone watch. So yeah, that stuff's good for sports. It always has been. And it'd be good for the yeah. women too. Like I say, I'm all for it. I'm all, for, I'm all for the fact that there might be real, like I say, heated competition. You can have, look, you can have the Oregon Stanford rivalry where that is one of just great mutual respect where Kelly Graves and Tara Vanderveer are like in terms of philosophically and how and in coaching and in the greater perspective of women's college basketball and their views of the game and sport and what have you, they are like attached at the hip. Like they are like completely in alignment with damn near everything in terms of their views of the sport and, and to make the game better and et cetera, et cetera. They, they really are. You can have a rivalry where there's great respect like that between competitors and coaches and players. And you can have a rivalry where people just plain don't like each other. And again, we talk about this in football all the time. There, there are rivalries in college football, in professional football, where the teams are 
absolutely hate each other. I mean, they're, they're literally throwing punches, and we glamorize it. But in the women's game, somebody said a bad word, and we're going to freak out? That's what I say. Like, that, that's so condescending. That's so ridiculous. Get off the high horse. Like I say, oh, I love college football. Why? Well, it's the rivalries. Look, look at how much Michigan and Ohio State hate each other. They're throwing punches. They, they, they can't even walk past each other without hating each other. Oh, a, a, a female coach said a bad word and made an obscene hand gesture not, six months ago. Let me freak out. I mean, what? What? What are we talking about? Like, give me a break. Like I say, like, get, get over it. Like, again, they're no less competitors. And frankly, many of them are at times superior competitors uh, to their male counterparts by way of just the way they're wired and stuff. So like I say that, you know, I I think it'll be great for the game. I think it makes the uh, February 4th matchup in Tucson that much more. Uh, that, that makes it like appointment television, quite frankly, <laughs> that night in Tucson. Uh, there's now, I, I think, a decent chance that I could be there that night, uh, not only because <laughs> of this, but because or- the Oregon women picked up, you know, a pair of top 10 wins. It started with that one. It turned into obviously the UConn game. We're not going to go into the UConn game to the nth degree because, quite honestly, as as big as a win as that is, and don't get me wrong, it is. This isn't excuse making; it's context. UConn had its hands tied behind its back. Obviously, we all would have loved to have seen Paige Beckers play, and then you combine that with Christian Williams not playing either, and they just—I mean, they were, they were without some of their best players, basically their best players, and. You know, yes, Oregon won. Oregon handled things. They, they spotted them 10 points to start the game and then handled things from there. But no, this team is coming together too. And when they were with, without Sobley, who hurt the right name, and we certainly hope that that's not a, a serious thing that could linger, uh, as it has at times this season. But Pow Pow getting back and averaging over 22 points last three games, uh, and shooting over 50% from the field and from three. And that's my point when we talk about like, you want to talk about comparable and stuff. And I know, I know the game's different. The game's different. I appreciate that. Yes. But again, can you imagine a, a, if there was a men's player who was averaging over 20 points over a three-game span and shooting over 50% from three? What kind of attention that would be generating? You know, that's what this young woman is doing. She's playing absolutely out of her mind these last three games. Just at a whole other level. And it's not just her. It's because she's back and Rodgers is back and Sobley is back and Prince is playing at a greater level now than she was in non-conference play. And some of the role players who were playing bigger roles when they were out, who are now playing much smaller roles, so far have taken to that really nicely. And it's all, you know, it's all hitting on all cylinders now. Uh, so again, the Oregon women also having a, a terrific run here uh, and putting themselves in position where they've got a couple of games this weekend with the Washington schools, uh, both of whom they should beat, quite frankly. So we'll see uh, as their month of uh, January continues. But they've got a great opportunity to also finish out the month of January, at least, really strong and put themselves in position for a run of February into March to uh, to be right in the thick of things from a Pac-12 standpoint. Uh, and, and the tournament was never in question. It was just a matter of were they going to be able to pick up the kind of quality wins to be one of the higher-seeded teams or were they just going to be kind of a middle seed kind of team like last season? And it looks like as long as they stay healthy, they're going to be probably a top 16, maybe a top 12 national seed. And that's entering the season. That's what you thought they would be. <laughs> but they went from that kind of a ranking to unranked. Now, they'll be back in the top 25 next week as long as they don't stub their toe this weekend. But that's that's a position they put themselves in. So 
again, credit to both, again, the Oregon men and women uh, on the hardwood where they have just done, a again, a, a terrific job here this past weekend, historic uh, fashion. To the football front for a couple items before we uh, bid you adieu here on this edition of the podcast. Uh, obviously, we still have the uh, finality of the Travis Dye situation to play out, and as we record this here on uh, Wednesday morning, uh, a decision has still not been reached. That said, uh, it could come... Quite literally at any minute. So by the time you're listening to this, a decision may have been reached or not. Um, uh, it, it could, it could occur any moment now. Um, but in the big picture, uh, and it, and to be clear, that decision could be to return. Uh, it's, it's not a foregone conclusion. I don't think either way, but for now, Oregon's best offensive player in the 2021 season in the transfer portal and, uh, you know, four year player. Program guy, leader, again, best offensive player this past season. Uh, and Dan Lanning, who said last time we spoke to him that, you know, priority number one is, is retention of the players who are here. Uh, this is, you know, for as much credit as he got and deserves, uh, for being able to keep Seven McGee and, and Sean Dollars, also at the running back position, who entered the portal and who quickly withdrew their names. This is far and away the biggest test he's facing. Uh, so far early in his tenure here is, Trying to retain Travis Dye. See, I have mixed feelings about it because not not mixed feelings about whether or not you'd want Dye back. Of course you would, but I don't think they need him back. Like I don't think it's a need situation. It's sort of like you know when you know Verdell when he got hurt. I figured Dye would do pretty well, and I think Cardwell is going to do well and Dollars and like I just if the old line is there at the back they put back there is going to be successful. To me, he's only staying. Because he must have gotten a, a weak draft grade. Because otherwise, I don't understand why he wouldn't just go pro. He's given four years on the field, go pro, make some money. Uh, but if you've got a weak draft grade, you're not sure you're even going to make a practice squad, then, yeah, you would come back and try and get some NIL money. But if you're at Oregon and you know they're going to play card well, and then we don't know what's going on with CJ either. He hasn't decided or at least announced that he's hasn't going to publicly, yet. Yeah. yeah, but I would think he would. Like, I, I mean, he's, he's given five years to the program, four on the field. Is he really going to come back for a sixth? And then, <clears throat> I mean, like, I couldn't imagine what, like, to me, Dollars and McGee should leave if Verdell and Dyer coming back, if they can find a place to play more, because then you'd have five backs uh, vying for, for time. So I don't know. The, the whole thing's very interesting to me. The, the idea that, you know, he's he's talking to USC, which I've been told about from a couple of people. I, I know other people have put that out there. Uh, you know, they they don't have the depth at running back. He could probably go there and maybe have a bigger role. Who knows? But Oregon's doing everything they can to get him. The NIL could be the huge component here. Who's going to give him the best, you know, way to make the most money and get the biggest uh, bang for his buck as, I, as a, as a I future don't player? Think, I, I, huh? I can't speak to every part of the financial side of this, if any. I, From what I am hearing, I don't think NIL will be a deciding factor at all. I mean, I'm not saying. So, if USC hey, offers 100k and Oregon offers 25k, that wouldn't be an issue. Are you saying that's again, gonna be close not, enough to where it's saying, not gonna matter? <laughs> I'm not saying that in the world that we're operating in. And again, the schools are not the ones you know footing the bill. Um, but be it as it may, you know, you live in the real world of it. But he did not go into the portal seeking a payday. That I can say. He did not go in trying to cash in. That was not his thought process. Well, the number the number one role, our goal, I would assume, would be the bigger role. 
well, there were uh, any any number of factors. Um, but again, in the bigger you, role, you, would probably mullet, come with the he's price still, tag, he's still right? technically speaking, he's still in the NFL draft right now. Technically speaking, right. yeah, until he's you know definitively decided one way or another. But if you're in that position, if you're weighing all of your options, one of the ways to weigh all of your options would be to go in the portal and see what other options may be there. Right. Okay. Um, but <laughs> what other op- what other option could there possibly be other than going to NFL making money unless you don't think you can make money? And if you don't think well, you can again, make money, and, then you and come if you're, back. But and if, if you're, you're leaning, coming back. But if you're leaning to playing your, your last season of college football, it's a matter of deciding – if staying or going somewhere else is the way and whether that's as you say role i don't know about bigger role he had an awfully big role this past season but would he have <laughs> a bigger role this season next season with all those backs would, would, he, would he still get the is same number a, of carries a question a question um for sure and i mean and he wasn't the starting running back for his entire career until verdell got yes until yes. verdell got injured and then right. once with that opportunity he did well had but a big year hit a big year right but if verdell comes back and you have I, like to me, Cardwell is better. He's going to be yeah, better. Yeah, we, we could. We, so, this, this would be a but, whole other podcast. I, I know, but I'm, of, I'm just talking about why, yeah. why I think role is a big deal for him because he's probably looking around, going, "Well, I only became a starter because Verdell got hurt. Is Verdell going to come back? Even if he doesn't come back, you got Cardwell, you got seven, you got Dollars. They were con- two of those guys were convinced to stay, so they're obviously going to feel like they're going to get some PT. So, how many carries am I going to get here versus another place where maybe I can be the guy, get more touches, more exposure, and then maybe that helps me in the draft, although I think his draft stock is pretty much set. And then then that's where I think money has to factor into it. Maybe it's not going to be a deciding factor. I don't know, but I don't know in the history of sports when money wasn't a huge factor. And since money's in play, I can't imagine that it's not going to be a factor unless the offers are equal and then it's something else. But who knows? The bottom line is I'm still tripping that he's even thinking about staying unless he's trying to make money because he can't. Does can't guarantee. Oh, there's there's ways by which there's definitely ways by which he can improve his draft stock. I mean, that goes for pretty much every player who's not a first round pick. Quite honestly, um, mm. there's there's I, manner of ways that he, he can. He do is it. what he is. I'm not saying that, not saying that he's going to turn himself into a first or second round pick tomorrow. But again, I'm not a professional draft scout and evaluator. You know, but there are things that he can certainly do to improve his game to act as though he's a finished product one way or another. Um, he's a is, finished. He's a finished. You know, he's a finished physical specimen of who he is in terms of us being a small back. And so what I'm saying, and I have talked to scouts unless, about him unless specific- he puts unless he puts ten to fifteen pounds on in the offseason. Okay, so then so then he, so then he becomes slower. So I mean, like I'm not saying you're wrong. What I'm saying is I've had these conversations with the NFL scouts about Jeremiah Johnson, Lamichael James, Kenyon Barner, DeAnthony Thomas, every small back that's come through here, and it's the same thing now. It's like he is what he is. He's five, what ten, one hundred and ninety pounds. He puts on too much weight. He's going to get slower. He's not necessarily a burner as it is. He's not a very physical right. runner. So my point is he's got 3,000 yards under his belt. If he comes back next year and rushes for 1,600, which I don't think he will, he's still going to be the exact same person. So I don't know if there's a huge uh, a way he can dramatically improve his stock because regardless, of next, this time next year, he's still going to be a small back who's not a burner. So – to me, if you if you knew you were going to make a fifty three man roster and make at least six hundred and sixty k next year, you leave. If you're told your borderline practice squad are cut, then you're like, eh, I come back and make some nil money. But anyway, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. It's fascinating though. What's do you think he's back or you think he's leaving? What's your hunch? I've heard the whole time that from the from the time that he jumped in, I've heard that he's torn on the whole thing. Yeah, same thing. And again, I that. Again, that he did not go into the portal seeking a payday. All right. So that this that was not the the primary motivating factor was not 
that. Now, again, you know, I'm, I'm not naive if, if, uh, if presented with certain options, um, that's, that's a different matter, but that was not the motivating factor in all this. So we'll see. We'll see what ends up happening here. It could, again, could happen before you end up, even those who are listening, uh, end up hearing it from us. Uh, but we'll see. And, and if he comes back, then Oregon has, again, uh, a proven commodity at the running back position with depth behind him. If Oregon loses die to SC or anywhere else or the draft, uh, and Verdell, then it has three scholarship running backs, one of whom it wants to or has played uh, at slot receiver in a you know pretty large capacity as the season went on. So if they lose both, they have to go out and pursue a running back or more via the portal or or unsigned high school players because you, you don't go into a season with that thin a depth chart at running back if if you lose those guys. I mean, no, nobody goes into the season with three running backs. You know, air raid offenses barely go into the season with there three was, running there backs. There was one year so. where I think Oregon did. I mean, you know, ideally you don't want to. It was, I, I got to look. And they're all in the same class by way of eligibility clock too. Yeah. So that's, you know. But again, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, but, and Travis obviously had, again, a, a terrific season. And uh, we'll see how it ends up playing out for him in terms of uh, where he goes and if he goes, if he comes back to college, if he goes to the pros. And again, technically speaking, from a technical, technical standpoint, uh, he is still in the NFL draft. And as a one of the quote unquote juniors entering their senior year by way of eligibility, uh, all of those players, Di and Verdell included, uh, they have until February 4th to make that decision officially. So all the underclassmen who were declaring for the draft, that deadline was the other day. For those players, we're talking about February 4th, but we'll see what Dye decides by way of the portal. Lastly, on the uh, recruiting front, uh, Oregon has added some, we're talking about the portal, Oregon has added some. We've obviously talked about Bo Nix before, uh, but they've also added uh, Sam Taimani at defensive tackle. They lost the defensive tackle in Jason Jones. They gained one in Taimani. They lost a defensive back in uh, cornerback in DJ James. They add one in Christian Gonzalez from Colorado. So this is part of it. Uh, in college football now, especially with the one-time transfer, so funny. There's basically going to be a as part of the recruiting process, especially if they get rid of the early signing day, which I think is probably rapidly upon us, uh, and would be better for the game um, going forward. Is if they just go back to the February period, it will create that much more stability on the coaching carousel, and it'll create that much more stability in the recruiting realm because you'll have the transfer period. And then you'll have the signing period. And when people fill out their class, they'll deal with the transfers. They'll deal with the recruiting side. Don't get me wrong, but they'll include the transfers for first and get them lined up first, potentially signed first. And then when they run out of room and commitments and areas to work with, then, you know, then the high school players, frankly, would be in a better spot because those were those fringe players. And it's like, well, are you going to suddenly pull an offer on me in the 11th hour? It's like, well, now you're going to find out exactly how many spots that school's got left well before we had to worry about an early period, late period. No, here's just how many transfers did you bring in or not? How much did you replenish the depth chart before I even showed up or not? And if you're a transfer, it's better for you too, quite frankly. Um, so I think they'll end up doing that. But to the big picture for the Ducks, 
Yeah, they lost some guys to either the draft or to transfer, but they've also brought in some guys. Uh, and frankly, they still have some areas to address too. So at this point, from uh, from your perspective, any areas that stick out to you and where of where they might have to uh, address some needs here uh, from the transfer realm before uh, before signing day or during signing day for that matter. Well, I agree with you on running back. I would like, and I agree with you, you mentioned this last time, wide receiver. They probably need to add a veteran wide receiver, I would think. Their wide receiver depth chart is looking pretty thin, and they don't have a ton of experience. Uh, and then defensively, I mean, uh, the secondary took, a, took some big hits. They added one guy. They might need another proven starter maybe back there. Um, but off the top of my head, those would be the, the areas for sure. Yeah, it's the, 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 those are the big ones. I think they could certainly use an edge rusher, but who couldn't? Um, Especially when you lose Kayvon, right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, look, they have talent there, but in terms, we're talking about more about depth. But ultimately, you know, if you had that caliber of an edge rusher, uh, one, if he was in the portal, you know, he'd probably be, have every offer imaginable to him already. Uh, so there's still some time to be sorted out there on any number of realms. But yeah, to me, the, the main position still goes back to receiver. And yes, they added one Justice Lowe. Uh, in his commitment on Tuesday, uh, he was lined up to go to Utah and, and an in-state guy and all that. Yes, all, all true. But we're talking more from a ve- from a veteran standpoint, from a proven standpoint, from a short-term commitment by way of you know bringing in a grad transfer caliber player or something at the receiver position. I think that would be enormous. And, and again, it's in terms of just the number of bodies, I think that's just an area that they have to address. Um, they're, they're thin at the position. They just are. Uh, so they have to add a couple of bodies there, I think. Um, whether we're talking about from the veteran perspective to add experience or you're trying to infuse it more at the high school realm, either way. But I do think they have to add a couple of receivers specifically. And they, that, and depending on what happens at running back, yes, also an area potentially. Um, frankly, a quarterback where you know they're looking at three. All three returning guys, um, but with Robbie Ashford moving on and, and you know your thinner – at that position. I don't think it's let's put it this way. Three is not alarmingly low. Obviously you say that you say that and then you know if an injury happens you're down to two. Well yeah. And that's that's kind of the the issue uh with, with three quarterbacks. In an ideal world you probably have four. But in an ideal world you'd also have the scholarship stacked a little bit differently uh than they are at the moment. So getting that fourth, frankly, is probably a little bit of a challenge. Uh either via the portal or via the high school realm, because if it's the high school realm, you know you're going to redshirt, and there's no way it's not going to be a redshirt. But at least you and have the body, because fourth is going to be emergency anyway. Yeah, but talking Ultra more emergency. Players, to, to, to the player's perspective, incoming player's perspective, you know, what am you're I coming, coming in to? to? You got me in. Uh, yeah, I'm not afraid to compete, but I, you know, as a, again, yeah. as, a, as a high school signee, it's one thing to say, all right, hey, I'm developmental, I'm going to redshirt, I'll... I'm I'm going to be okay waiting my time to truly compete at that level. For a transfer to come in when Bo Nix is already here and Ty Thompson's here and Butterfield's here, yeah, that's, that's a harder spot. That's yeah. a harder spot. I'm not saying impossible. Obviously, that's this place almost is impossible. Running, you know. Like what what kind of guy are you going to convince to come in and try and climb that ladder? <laughs> Again, there's some who look. There there are places who brought in multiple quarterback transfers in the same offseason. Look, Virginia Tech brought in multiple quarterback transfers in the offseason. I know. South Carolina brought in Rattler. I think they might have, but they had, ju- but they had a starting job open, right? But, but so does Oregon. Well, I mean, kind did of. they not lose a starting quarterback? I, I seem to remember that Anthony Brown's no longer here. You know what I I'm mean, talking about? Don't, don't. But point is, 
if they brought in if they brought in a, a you say who would come in well there are quarterbacks out there who would not necessarily be intimidated by the prospect of competing i mean again it's happened at a couple of spots no yeah. just saying like i i acknowledge reality with you look nicks came out <laughs> all, came all the way out here he's played with dillingham before i, I get it but you know Say, okay, here's what I'm saying. Yeah, I would yeah. I would be floored if a quarterback the in the caliber realm that could compete with Knicks, let alone Thompson, would come to Oregon to do that. I would think they'd have better options. So that's why I'm saying like, by way of the path of shocking play, man, maybe the path of play to but, come in to try and beat out Knicks, whose whose former OC is the OC here now. And then you still have the five, like it just, like if I'm a transfer, like this is one of the places where I wouldn't go if I really expect to have a chance to play. I'd probably pick a team that does not have a proven starter transfer and a five star quarterback on their roster. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. But again, there's, there's places where these things have happened. And for that matter, the portal's not done, not just not done in January, it's not going to be done in February. And there's going to be post spring transfers. In late April, right before the oh, deadline course. on May 1st. Of course. So, Butterfield's going to be one. Again, Aaron will uh, <laughs> publicly speculate about the uh, uh, off-season maneuvers of uh, uh, players, which he is free to do. Uh, but be that as it may. We're so doing that, again, doing that will, for 15 uh, years, man. I'm not going to stop. We, well, you, you got it. Uh, so, again, we uh, with that. We'll wrap up this edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. A reminder, for those of you who don't subscribe yet, make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. That way it'll just drop right in your uh, podcast feed there. Make sure to give us a five-star review and like and all those fine things so more people can find us as well. And we will see you uh, in the not-too-distant future. I'm sure we'll probably do something right around uh, the start of February and signing day and all that good stuff. I don't want to step too much on our on the toes of our other colleague, Andrew Nemec, and the fine work he does covering recruiting. Uh, so we'll let him do with all that kind of stuff on uh, that perspective. But I'm sure we'll be back in the not-too-distant future to go over, again, all things on the basketball front and where the Ducks men and women find themselves at that point uh, and where this recruiting class and any further player movement incoming and outgoing uh, leaves the Ducks. So with that, I'm James Crepe, and he's Aaron Frenchers, and we will see you next time.